Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 12 of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Dimmitt. Today's guest on the podcast is my friend, Mike Doyle. Mike is an elite-level rock climber who's been climbing 514 for more than 20 years. Some of his most notable ascents include the first ascent of Lucifer, a 514C in the Red River Gorge in 2006, and more recently, his repeat of the notoriously hard Necessary Evil, another 14C at the Virgin River Gorge, which Mike climbed in 2015, and which we talked about a fair amount in this interview. We talked about some of the lessons he learned from more than 10 years of coaching and competing, including the best piece of coaching advice Mike ever got. We talked about training and how he thinks about block training and when to use it. We talked about on-siding tips, his favorite climbing shoes that he uses for on-siding, as well as his other go-to climbing shoes. We also talked about his career as a software engineer and about working extra remotely, as Mike calls it and where Mike hopes to take his work and his climbing in the future. And we talked about climbing the Canadian Alpine Trilogy in the Canadian Rockies, which he did along with Sasha DeJulian in the summer of 2018. As always, all the articles, videos, and routes we mentioned are linked in the show notes over at thenuggetclimbing.com. So if you're curious about anything from the interview, you can head over there and check them out. This episode was recorded pre-coronavirus, I hope you guys are staying safe and healthy out there, maybe getting some good training in on the hangboard. Maybe we'll all come out of this stronger. You never know. Be well, friends, and as always, thanks for listening. Please enjoy this conversation with Mike Doyle. So I listened back through your interview with Neely on Training Beta from like five years ago. Yep. And you were saying that you you were eating oatmeal with peanut butter and banana. Is that still your go-to breakfast? It is. Yeah. Had it this morning. You did? Yeah. Any other ingredients? Uh, blueberries, <clears throat> apples sometimes, some nuts. Still my go-to. What if you're really treating yourself to a nice breakfast? Oh, French toast, mm. bacon. In fact, I would say the best breakfast I've ever had is at One Street Down Diner in Redmond. Oh, no kidding? Yeah, they've got coffee maple glazed bacon. Oh my god. It is phenomenal. Why have you been holding out on me? No, or? this is I thought it was I thought it was like a known thing. I, no. Oh, the yeah. other locals have been holding out on me. Oh yeah, I I purposely plan rest days to go to there on and then one just, street down. Yeah. It's I've called One Street Down. I've even been there. On 7th I, I just 6th. finally went there recently. Yeah, but did you get the coffee? No. So they take like coffee not. grounds, like fresh coffee grounds, maple glazed bacon, yeah. douse it in coffee grounds, and then fry it up. It's, oh my gosh. It's heaven. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to go back for that. Cool. We're rolling. Okay. Hey, Mike. Hey. How are you? <laughs> Thanks Good for to see you. Yeah, you too. Good. Thanks for hanging out in the van. Yeah. Sorry it's raining for your first day in Las Vegas. <clears throat> I know. I've been joking that I'm here on a climbing gym trip. But fun to check out your climbing gym. Okay, that's good. Yep, had a great session. So one thing that's interesting, I was kind of in my prep for this, I was pulling up information on you. And of course, we've known each other for a number of years. But something I'd totally forgotten about, and I don't think people have heard much about, is your coaching career. Okay, yeah. So you you first started out in climbing, indoor climbing, and competition climbing. But that really quickly transitioned into you coaching. Right. Well, I mean, I started outdoor climbing okay. um, through a program in, in my high school. And then a friend of mine, basically my, my best friend in high school, was the first one of us to get a car. And he was super into climbing so we just every weekend we went climbing and you're in vancouver in, area? in Kelowna 
Okay. And then a climbing gym opened up there. And then through the winter, I remember that first winter after it opened, I spent every night at the climbing gym. Okay. <laughs> and then transitioned to competition climbing from there as a way of staying motivated through the long Canadian winters. Got it. And then transitioned to coaching from that. Uh-huh. I was listening to an interview that you did with Neely Quinn, I think, five years ago, and I'll link to that in the show notes. It's a great interview that I'd, I'd recommend to anybody. But I think you said in that that you started climbing around 13, 14, but then you really started climbing like at 16, 17. So yeah. is that when that climbing gym opened, I, I Yes, and when my friend got a car. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, other than that, you're riding your bike around town. Right. And... You know, I was more into mountain biking, probably at 13, 14. That's what my brother's friends were doing. Uh-huh. And I would climb a couple times a year, but definitely not specific. And then I was also more focused on mountaineering, which oh, okay. I look back at and I laugh at. But yeah, we would do like the program in my high school was a mountaineering program. Uh-huh. And we would do rock climbing just as rope management training, basically for mountaineering. Huh. But then I realized that mountaineering is a lot of time in the snow and in a tent. Yes. Or at least at the time it was. Now there's obviously people doing crazy stuff that I wish I could get into. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was just, uh, so then the rock climbing kind of took over. How many trips did you do in the mountains before that lesson really sunk in? Um, there was a lot of like, years of like, you know, the school years, 10 months long, we would do one trip a month oh, okay. with the program. And then we'd, I would do additional trips outside of that. But it was actually after I'd graduated high school and I'd booked a, or planned a trip to go do Mount Robson, which is the tallest peak in the Canadian Rockies. And spent a week sitting in a tent. And I remember it was perfect climbing temperatures or perfect climbing conditions in Skaha at the time. Okay. <laughs> and I was, I remember just being like, this sucks. Like, I can't believe I'm here playing cards, you know, day in, day out yeah. when I should be rock climbing. Yeah, yeah got I it. Don't think I've put on a pair of plastic boots since. <laughs> so then was it university that took you to Vancouver and like the North Vancouver gym? Yep. So I moved to Van- uh, Vancouver for university. Okay. And, um, and then the North Vancouver gym already had a fairly established junior team program. Okay. And the head coach there asked me to come coach. Uh, and I'd already been coaching for a few years outside of that gym. Okay. Yeah. How old were you at the time? So when I started coaching, I was probably 18, but I was coaching like 15, 16 year olds, basically just wanted training partners. Um, <laughs> and then when I started coaching in North Vancouver, I was probably 20 maybe 19, 20, 21, somewhere in there. Okay. And the reason it really captured my curiosity and I wanted to dive into it is because I, I had just done an interview with Will Stanhope and I'd forgotten that he was a part of that team, at least. For, yeah, absolutely. For, yeah, for a little yep. while. And of course, people probably know that Sean McCall came yep. out of that program, Jason Cruck. It's a really stacked field of climbers that went on to do amazing things that came out of that program. So. Yeah, and so even before those guys, if you follow any international news, there's a climber called Reed McAdam from North Vancouver who's put up a bunch of 14, uh, mid-5-14s, 14 pluses, huh. kind of in the Middle East and uh, in like North Africa and, and uh, other places. Um, but he, so the, the climbing program actually started, in, in fact, I think even like junior competition climbing kind of started in the Northwest, Seattle, Vancouver area. And so in the early 90s, there was a program that was like sponsored by Arcteryx at this gym called The Edge. And so it was the Arcteryx Edge junior team. So by the time even like Will, I think was one of the early members, but when he was like seven years old, he was, Mm. you know, a member of that team. And then by the time Sean came around, you know, Sean started climbing at like 9, 10. The program was already established for quite a few years. And he had people that were like 16, 17, 18 
to look up to to see how the training and focus on competition and stuff like that. Okay. And so I used to compete against those guys that were on the edge junior team. And that's actually another reason why I wanted to start a team where I was. Is okay. I looked at them as having this team. They had training partners. So I started the team like in Kelowna. Uh-huh. And basically used that as motivation to train and stuff like that. And then I then I moved to Vancouver and started coaching at the edge. Okay. But um, Sean Fader was the first person, I believe, to start the edge uh, junior team. And then Andrew Wilson took over for him. And Andrew Wilson is still the head coach of Canadian Climbing. So mm. still involved, still actively pushing people. It's pretty exciting. That's awesome. Can you point to anything in particular that you think you guys were doing well there that allowed that group to be so successful? It was the culture. I mean, like I said, if you have, because it was one of the oldest programs, you see the, when the young kids come in, they see the older kids, what they're doing and the amount of effort they put in and training and stuff like that. So because you have this focus from the older kids kind of, you know, mentoring the younger kids, it's it's easy for the younger kids then to see like, okay, training is supposed to be kind of a, a serious thing. And now, mm. you know, when I came, I definitely brought a competition experience background to it because I was already I was already competing in like the, back then was like the ASTF nationals. Um, was this all lead climbing? Yeah, even bouldering outside didn't exist in Squamish <laughs> at the time. Like it's okay. ridiculous when I think back on it. But um, there was bouldering competitions, but they were done in combination with route climbing. And they were basically just mini routes, you know, like that's okay. kind of how they were they were done. But um, it was all focused on the yeah, difficulty lead climbing. And even the team we coached, it was the kids only competed at lead climbing. We did speed climbing only at the Worlds. Um, mm. And so it was kind of a joke to us. We would make the kids, you know, do speed climbing because we thought it was fun. You know? uh -huh. But some of them were dressed up in costumes and some of them would, you know, do well. But yeah, it was kind of a, a joke to us. Gotcha. Now, now I see speed climbing being taken seriously and bouldering being taken seriously. And it's, uh, it's different. Uh -huh. And you ended up doing that for, what, 10 years? Yeah, about 10 years. Were you competing the whole time? Um, I did. I continued competing, you know, not a super high level. Going through university, competition climbing was my focus. And then once I graduated university and I was working full time, it was harder to focus on competition climbing and even, you know, difficult sport climbing. It's easier to focus on projecting something where if conditions aren't right, if you don't feel right, you just come back the next day. Whereas competition climbing, you train mm. six to eight months to peak for one day. And if something happens, like I remember very distinctly, there was a competition down in Mexico that I trained really, really hard for. But the week before the competition, I was busy at work and I didn't get a lot of sleep and stuff mm. like that. So then I showed up in competition in Mexico knowing it's hard to turn that away. It's hard to know that you showed up and you're not in peak condition. Whereas you want to be, you want to stage the last week before a competition. You want to like, you know, have stuff ready, prepped. Yeah. And then show up and be psyched and excited. So, it, but it's hard like the day of the competition to focus and knowing that like in the back of your mind, you're like, yeah, but you're exhausted. You haven't slept in a week, you know? Uh huh. So I think that was probably, that was 2004. I've done a few World Cups since, but only as like, hey, I can go enter a World Cup. You know, like I've done a few the ones in... Atlanta when they were held there and in Denver and uh, Boulder. Okay. But that's just because they were available in North America. Um, gotcha. I've done a couple in Europe back in the early 2000s, but nothing didn't do well. Uh-huh. Yeah. Got you. I've heard you say that you were much more successful coach than you were a competition climber for yourself. Yeah, for sure. What do you think allowed you to be such a good coach? You, you Actually, yeah. we were just in the climbing gym and I... I could repeat that. Yeah, yeah, I asked you so, that and you said kind of tongue-in-cheek that it yeah. was because you were an asshole. Yeah, it's because I'm an asshole. I can point <laughs> out what you're doing wrong. Um, and I have no problem telling you what you're doing wrong. Yeah. Um, but no, seriously, I think um, there's a few things. And I mean, obviously, I worked with good people, like working with Andrew Wilson. He brought a different aspect of the training than I did. Like when I first started coaching, 
I coached the way I had been coached in other sports and coaching boy real quick what other sports oh like i mean i i did everything hockey soccer you know even though you wouldn't believe it basketball volleyball okay. track and field yeah how tall are you yeah five five uh-huh. lacrosse <laughs> i mean you know basically anything to get out of the house uh-huh. you know, so okay um was never really exceptional at any of them but um mm-hmm. you know you kind of pick up tips from coaches coaches you liked coaches you didn't but my way of coaching was very much to challenge the people you know and to try and maybe even pit them against each other huh when i first started and the funny thing is, like, that does not work at all. Like, in oh. climbing especially, because climbing's an individual sport, you really have to tailor your coaching to the individual hmm. athletes. And, you know, coaching girls, I don't want to generalize, but, like, you know, coaching girls is different than coaching boys. And obviously, you have to create an individual relationship with everybody. But I would try and, like, pit 13-year-old girls against each other. And that <laughs> really quickly realized that, like, that's not a good thing, you know. <laughs> As it is, and this is going to be generalization, and you know, I don't want people to take this to heart, but sure, like, yeah. quite often, the women that are already getting into climbing, and, and I think it's different nowadays because it's much more acceptable, but they were already kind of putting themselves out there in a male-dominated sport. Mm. And then to have them pitted against each other just was not a good thing. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and so I think it was probably Andrew that like, you know, pretty quickly was like, hey, like that's not, you know, let's, let's take a different approach. And then I started taking, like really trying to get to know the kids themselves. And I mean, this is, I'm talking late 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And some of those kids are still some of my best friends to this day. Oh, that's you know? so cool. So you create these relationships where, you you know, you're simple things like, hey, how was school today? You know, and how'd your math test go? You know, just little things. But like, but then you learn how to kind of push them and trigger them and stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, and then like how to make them perform on that day, like just little things like you would say to one kid certain something and then another kid, you would say something like, you know, we used to. I used to coach the national team, but you'd only get the kids on the national team for a week before the competition. So we'd usually do a training camp maybe early summer, and then the competition was either late August or mid-September, somewhere in that time. But you were expected to know these kids in that one week, you know. Mm. So we even came up with ways of like little trigger questions that we would want to ask the kids. And some of them were based off my experience. Like, you know, I remember being at a competition once and my foot slipped. And I heard my mom gasp, you know, because you just, you trigger off familiar sounds and Uh you can always hear people, you know, cheer. And it made me tense on the wall. So then my mom was never allowed to watch me compete again. Oh, wow. Well, until I became a little more competent (laughs) and comfortable with that, then I don't care anymore. Uh I haven't done a competition in years, but I'm sure I wouldn't care now if my mom came (laughs) to watch me. Um, Whereas like my dad was really stoic and, you know. All I wanted him to do is tell me to breathe, you know. Huh. So as soon as I left the ground, he would just be like, breathe, Mike, breathe. And I'd hear this metronome in the background being like, breathe, Mike, breathe, Whoa. as I was climbing. Yeah. And that really, really helped. And then once it became a little more comfortable, like I said, with all that stuff, and he would still show up at comps, and he, but he knew his role, even though I didn't need it anymore, but it, it made me laugh. He would uh-huh. just be like, breathe, Mike, breathe. And people would be kind of looking at him like, what? He's like... It's my job. You know? <laughs> um, no, and I really did appreciate it. But because of those things from my competition experience, I would ask questions of the kids like that. Like, is there anything I say? Is there anything, you know, that triggers you that you don't want that you want? You know, like some people don't like being told good luck because luck has nothing to do with it. Hmm. You know, some people don't want to be like, you know, oh, you're going to crush. Like, that puts too much pressure on them. And so you have to have these conversations with them and then go into a competition and be like, okay. Let's review afterwards. Now, did that work for you? You know, some people like laughing on the wall. I remember Vicky huh. Weldon telling me I had to yell in a massive auditorium. She just wanted to hear me cheer for her, yell fuzzy purple slippers. She wanted to embarrass me 
But I'm like, I'm good. Like, I will do anything for these kids to perform well. If you want me to yell fuzzy purple slippers at the top of my lungs, and I've got a fairly powerful voice, I will. And so she was like halfway up the wall of qualifiers. She's doing really well. Uh-huh. I'm like, fuzzy purple slippers. And I started turn around and laugh. And then she just cruised, you know, the, wow. made her laugh. And she that's what she wanted. You oh, know? super interesting. Yeah. Huh. I don't know if I, I yelled at her a couple times, like outdoor climbing since then, but I don't think I've used that one in a competition since. <laughs> but then other kids, you'd be like, you know, like relax, be strong, send it up. Like that's what you use on them. Like, you know, you kind of right before they go out or some people's like, they don't want to relax. They want to be aggro, you know? And um, yeah. were most of the kids self-aware enough to to know what they needed or what they wanted? No, you had to, you had to really try like, and then talk through I would say them. the biggest challenge we had being from a small community up in Canada yeah there wasn't a lot of competition around and there wasn't a lot of high level competitions so someone like Sean McCall his only competition of the year was at the world championships Hmm. nationals you know there was some kids that could challenge him a little bit but he would have to screw up to lose Mm -hmm. so after he won nationals three times in a row and already won worlds a few times we started only focusing him on worlds we wouldn't even focus on nationals because I mean, he, the chances of him placing fifth and below and not making the team was almost zero. But we really wanted him to win worlds, and he ended up winning five of six worlds or something oh, like that. Oh, wow. But other kids were the same way. They just didn't have a challenge other than once a year at worlds. So these really intricate, like the mental battles, we'd only get to experiment once a year. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays, I think it's much more. There's many more competitions. But like we encourage our kids to go and try and do the European Youth Circuit or go down to Seattle if there was a big competition or fly to Denver if there's a big competition. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'd say that was the, the biggest challenge we had was actually finding those important enough competitions where it mattered huh. if you were on or not. So they could learn what helped them thrive. And yeah. yeah. And then to be able to have that discussion afterwards about, you know, what worked, what didn't. Got it. Oh, that's super interesting. So it sounds like you got into coaching. And I don't know how much of a joke this is, but it sounds like it was a little bit self-serving. Like you just wanted training partners. You Absolutely. Just, yeah. 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 But then, I mean, you just expressed that you really loved it, that you really cared about it, that you were willing to do anything to help your kids do better. And, yeah. And I still see that kind of supportiveness in you when I see you out at the crag, wherever we are. Yeah. Um, was that there right away in your coaching or did that kind of grow in time? No, I'd say that was there right away. But I mean, even... Like those kids when I was 18 and they were, you know, 15, 16, mm-hmm. some of those people I still keep in touch with and climb with. Um, but again, like my coaching style was much more brash at the start. Like I, you know, I get terrified lead climbing still. I still huh. every so often take, have to force myself to take falls just to get it over with. Whereas really? back then I'd be like, don't be scared. You can't be scared, blah, blah, blah. Even though I'd be myself terrified. You know? Oh, that's really interesting. Um, so, cause it was, that's how I thought you were supposed to coach. I would have never guessed that by the way. Well, I'm a little more comfortable in like places like Smith Rock now than I used to be. <laughs> but yeah, like when, I mean, this will make you laugh. Like on Rude Boys, the first time I got on Rude Boys, uh-huh. I couldn't get up the slab. It was too scary. Uh-huh. And the bottom part wasn't that problem. So I actually went up dreaming, uh-huh. set a top rope off the anchors of dreaming. No kidding. And top roped the Rude Boys slab, which okay. was terrifying. Yeah. You know, but in my mind, it made sense. Yeah. And then I set up the Rude Boys slab with like 10 foot runners on every bolt. No way. But when I did Rude Boys, like the next fall, uh-huh. I didn't even have the back then. There wasn't a bolt where at the upper protection, you yeah, yeah. Like put like a camera nut there. Little I didn't nut. even have that. Okay. And I just cruised it. Like, I don't know what happened, but like, you just kind of get a little more comfortable with the train, knowing yeah. where you're going. 
That's um, really interesting. on sighting scary, run-out stuff, I, there's no way I could have done that. If good. anything, I would kind of put you in the more bold climber category in my brain. If I rehearse something, for okay. sure. Like yeah. on Spank the Monkey yes, or exactly. stuff like that. Like Spank the Monkey, the cruxes are really well protected. Like they are right at the bolts. Uh-huh. So you just have to be comfortable climbing. I mean, in case people don't know, it's a 13D arete on monkey face with you know potentially 20 feet. Well, not potentially. It has 20 feet between bolts. Yeah. Um, you know what? I, real quickly, I'd been told from Will Nazarian, and I think this I is know, a true, true story. True. Yeah. True. So I think he, he uh, maybe he had put up the 12A, so the 13D is an extension to that mm-hmm. that goes all the way up the wall. And he had kind of lowered in and put some bolts just to look at the route, yep. intending to come back and add twice as many bolts if he was actually going to try to climb it. Never got around to it. And then Tommy shows up, sends it. And, it's and now been, you have to do it. That it's way. been that way ever since. And I think those were just cleaning bolts and they're still there. Yeah. Like those are not full strength bolts. So you're going 20 feet between bolts, taking potentially massive bolts. And I don't think they've been replaced. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. And to back up, I feel like we owe some listeners some more context. So Rude Boys is a 13B or C at Smith. The bottom part's hard. The slab's, I don't know, 11 plus maybe, 11, right. 511 But something. even then the 511 part's well protected. It's just 510 <laughs> uh-huh. slab climbing. Yeah. But there's a Smith Rock slab climbing, not yes. Yosemite Squamish slab climbing. It's <laughs> edges and footholds. Yeah, you know? yeah. There's actually holds. Yeah. So you climb the Dreamin' as a 12A to the right of it. So you climb that, set up the top rope. And yeah, which then is, I look at it now. Where did you find all the 10-foot runners? <laughs> oh, just like chopped old ropes. I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, I, honestly, I, I couldn't tell you. But... Um, <laughs> I can't remember. Somebody called it like a Canadian, the Canadian variation or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then, like I said, I didn't do it. And I came back a year later and just in that time had become more mentally comfortable. Interesting. And did it without even that. So I went 40 feet from the last bolt to the anchor, you know. You think just from ex- repeat exposure, just growing your comfort zone? Yeah. And just also climbing different styles, climbing at Squamish a lot more, that kind of stuff. Mm. And um, yeah, I think when I first got on Rude Boys, I'd never done a 513 even. Mm. So not that that should matter on a 511 when you're climbing 513, uh-huh. but it did. Yeah. Yeah. Have you always been your own coach? Yeah. I mean, I take advice from people for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you kind of have to, but yeah, I've never had an official coach or anything like that, but I've definitely, you know, talked to people about training ideas. Um, yeah. That's interesting. So to back up a minute, you were kind of joking about yourself being an asshole, which allows you to be such a good coach because you're able to help people identify their blind spots, right? But that's so much more difficult, at least for me, to do for myself than, you know, it's easier to see it in other people. Mm-hmm. Are you able to, to catch your own blind spots? Or? I know what they are, but working on them is another thing. <laughs> okay. you know? um, yeah. How do you think about that? Yeah. Like, I I mean, I'm, you know, short at 5'5". Five, five. You know, being more flexible would really, really, really help me in climbing in a lot of ways. But it's just not something I've ever worked on because I don't enjoy it. Mm. And I mean, I, that's not true. I worked on it actually quite a bit when I was competing. Okay. You know, like in university and stuff like that, when I was competing, I tried to work on it. It just didn't have a lot of effect. Um, but once I started working full time, climbing was an escape. And as soon as even training, like even, you know, I go back to like fingerboard training or weight training or something like that, at least that's kind of fun. You see mm-hmm. progress and stuff like that. But I, every time I tried to stretch or tried to work on flexibility, it always felt like a chore mm-hmm. and climbing still supposed to be an escape for me that I just would give up. Mm. So what? I think I can see my weaknesses. Mm-hmm. I just don't work on them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't pay myself to coach myself. That's for sure. <laughs> what about with the more physical sides of coaching and training? Did you work on that with your, with your athletes? 
Absolutely. And Andrew Wilson, the head coach of the of the Edge team, he had a background in kinesiology. Okay. So he would kind of schedule that stuff, and then I would adapt it maybe to be a little bit more sports-specific, some stuff. But I would also do a lot of research. Um, mm-hmm. I would talk to other coaches, look at gymnastics programs, um, other you know bodyweight-related exercises, and develop exercises based off of that. But the reality is, it's like... You know, strength training has been around for a long, long time, and the bodyweight-specific stuff isn't that new. And a lot of people are coming up with new things now, but in my opinion, it kind of seems a little gimmicky. Mm. Um, I think most of what people call strength training is actually just technique. You know, like hmm. the, I differentiate between strength, power. Like I think strength is the actual recruitment of the muscle, mm-hmm. and then power is the ability to utilize that quickly in, in terms of like camps and stuff like that or dead pointing accurately. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people that look at camping as strength training, but it's not. You're just, it's not effective strength training. Okay. It's effective technique. Absolutely. You will learn how to, you know, contract your fingers quicker, aim better, all that kind of stuff. And it's effective and it's useful, but you're not going to make muscular adaptations that quote unquote will make you stronger. Mm. Got you. Are there a few key exercises that you could point to that you think were most effective with your athletes or for yourself? No, the thing is, especially teaching, uh, coaching uh, teenagers, Mm -hmm. they're going to get stronger. Like we would definitely cycle. We would do strength training, bouldering, uh, endurance. You know, we would have cycles, but they're going to get stronger just by getting in the gym. And I think the best advice I ever got was from uh, the Spanish coach. And at the time, I can't remember his name now, um, but at the time they were the top team in the world, the the Spanish team. Hmm. And so I, you know, wanted to know, like, hey, what do you do? Because I figured he had some magic, you know. Yeah. He's like, just make the environment fun. Make the kids want to come to the gym. They'll get strong. Wow. And wow. Yeah. And that's like, even to this day, like that's, you get a 12, 13 year old kid in there, like into the gym three times a week and then make them want to come four and five times a week outside of practice. They're going to get strong. Huh. Does that change for adults? Yeah, it's harder to get strong. <laughs> um, <laughs> that same kind of approach, though. I mean, yeah. do you think it could be that simple? It's just, I don't know. Just... Yeah, just get to the... I mean, honestly, if, like, <clears throat> I don't think you have many adults that don't already have the fun part. I think it's easy as a teenager to kind of get forced into stuff because your parents okay. sign you up. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but then if they only come the three days a week when you're training, they're not going to get strong. They're not going to get that much stronger, you know? Whereas mm-hmm. if they come that additional fourth and fifth day a week with their friends that they've made from the team or friends or whatever, they're going to get a lot stronger mm-hmm. or a lot better even, you know, not necessarily stronger, but the adaptations are going to happen much mm-hmm. better. But same thing with adults. Like you, if you, all you do is your strength train three days a week, you're going to be strong. And there's lots of guys out there. You see them that are ridiculously strong, but they can't rock climb or mm-hmm. crap because they haven't had that exhausted session where they're learning how to move efficiently just because they want to stay an extra hour with their buddies, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's when you learn techniques when you're tired. Interesting. So I want to dig into a little bit more of your training and, and I'll refer to the training beta podcast episode that you did again. I'll link to that in the show notes. You guys really went into the nuts and bolts of your training for Necessary Evil, mm-hmm. which is a 14C that you did at the VRG five years ago. Yep. So again, I'll link that in the show notes. But a few things did stand out from that that I was really curious about that I had some questions. It sounds like you were mostly, you were doing these training blocks in the summer that was kind of the off season and you were really focused on heavy fingerboarding. Yeah. 
maybe some lap pull downs. Yep. It sounded like a really simple program. Maybe Super some simple. running. I mean, but strength training is simple. Like yeah. Strength training is simple. Just, you know, push your muscles and, you know, then you can do variations on it. But, uh-huh. you know, especially for some of the major muscle groups, it's simple. And your forearms are a major muscle group. They are. I think you broke it down. I think you were hangboarding twice a week, maybe running twice a week, and then climbing once a week and doing easier routes or something like that. When I was when I was pure strength training, I yeah. wasn't running at all. Okay. Um, because you want all your recovery to go towards the strength training portion. Of uh-huh. it. When I'm trying to lean out and you know get more towards like fitness and stuff like that, then I would run. And for me, I had to do road running at a kind of slower pace, or else my legs would get too big. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Um, Have you always thought about strength training for climbing in that way? And what I mean by that is, do you prefer to approach it in block training in the off season versus trying to integrate it into a a season when you're climbing? I didn't always think that. Um, I always had the idea of peaking though, like for competitions. And so there you would have some stuff lead up, but I generally, like I didn't back away to pure strength training for years. And in fact, I wrote a, a coaching manual, which when I was the head coach of the Canadian team, I wanted something that kids uh, in Eastern Canada could reference when I was at least talking with them. Mm. So, you know, I basically just put down my current knowledge at the time. And I think you can still find like online, there's some stuff on there. Uh, I hosted by some random sites. <laughs> um, but that one there's a few things. One, I actually did a bunch of endurance training right before competitions, which makes no sense in hindsight, but I didn't actually back down enough to strength training. And then I wrote some articles for, I think, Rock and Ice, maybe late 2000s. And that's where I reference a lot more of the the dedicated strength training, which I think is more important, especially as you start getting a little older and the adaptations aren't coming as quickly. Or as we were talking about getting closer to your limit, you're not going to be able to just climb through your limit. You actually need to like back away and figure out what your weaknesses are, target mm. target that, or take six to eight weeks, just strength train, so you actually come back stronger. If you just climb, your skin might be the thing failing. Your, you know, there could be a bunch of things that are going on that you aren't actually getting stronger. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a recent push from a lot of coaches to try to integrate these like kind of minimal effective dose sort of programs. So you're mm-hmm. doing a little bit of fingerboarding. You're also mixing in bouldering. You're also you know, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. sport climbing or whatever. You're kind of doing a mix of things. And I, you know, my understanding is the idea is that you're doing just enough of the training to slowly incrementally get stronger over the long haul. Um, but you're still climbing. You're still performing at a pretty high level, maybe not peaking. Have you ever tried something like that? Yeah, and that's generally what you do when you're either in red point mode or like right now I don't have a specific goal with climbing. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I do now. It's just trying to like alternate like, you know, even a week of hangboarding, then don't hangboard for a bit. Because the problem is if you back off like what I did with Necessary Evil and I backed off completely and took roughly six months to ramp back up. Yeah. I mean, there was a time like after the you know six to eight week mark where I went out with friends to go climbing and I fell on routes that there's no way I would have fallen on. Like I, you drop down so much. It's actually kind of mentally taxing. You're like, I can't believe I'm this weak, but you're not huh. weak. You're just not focused on climbing and uh-huh. climbing is very specific. So, you know, I put on some weight cause I, I'm a bit of a mesomorph and, um, you know, I walk out and haven't climbed in six weeks and I weigh you know 10 pounds more than I normally do. Uh huh. 
doesn't feel too good. <laughs> so remind me, I, you went into this in that conversation, but I think you did like six weeks of heavy fingerboarding, took two weeks off, maybe did another six weeks. Yeah. Okay. And then you're talking about like maybe an additional three or four months to really ramp back up to Correct. hard red pointing. Yeah. Got you. Okay. Were you main, were you trying to maintain strength and doing like kind of maintenance workouts yeah, in would, that time? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would still do hangboarding at least once a week. Okay. And I would try and target the, like my hangboarding is kind of similar to Basically, I would alternate the time that I was hanging each week. So I'd do three-week cycles, mm-hmm. and I would do start with like ten to, or twelve to fifteen seconds. Then the second week, I would do eight to twelve seconds. Then the third week, I do five to eight seconds. Mm-hmm. So then during the red point phase and stuff like that, I would still try to target that ten to twelve-second hangs and make sure see how my strength was feeling during okay. that. But and I wouldn't go back down to like the five to eight-second hangs. Though. Okay, that would be a little bit too at the weight that I was doing would be too uh, strenuous. And to clarify, these are kind of max strength style, like you're doing one really hard hang and then waiting for two or three minutes to recover. Yeah, I would do, but I would do a bunch of different holds. Okay. And so I would, for the, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but for the shorter duration hangs, I would actually rest longer between the hangs. Because they're more maximal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got you. One question I had specific to that, in that conversation with Neely, you said that I think on your, like a one pad edge, open four fingers two hands, you had 180 pounds added yeah. to your body or like 178 or something was the yeah, highest you got to. Yeah. And wh- I mean, what do you weigh? Like 140? Yeah. So at the time I was probably like 148. The question that was like screaming at me was why not train one handed? I never did. And why? even now, even now I can't hang one handed. No I kidding. Just, I just can't do it. I don't know what it is. Like if you give me a hold That's less, fascinating. less than a pad and a half, uh-huh. I can't hang it one handed. I just never, I don't, it, and I'm, I don't think it's a strength thing. I think it is a technique thing. Huh. I just, my shoulder doesn't stabilize. I was going to say, is it like a scapular or like, I, yeah, something in that your would shoulder? Be, that would be interesting. Cause like every, I, every huh. so often I, I walk in, cause I see guys like Alex Migos doing, you know, plus 25 kilos. Yes. You know, and I'm like, wow, that, that <laughs> looks ridiculous. You know, yeah. I should at least be able to hang one head. I know he's 50 pounds stronger than me per hand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so I should, you know, I should be able to hang one hand because I can hang double my body weight off two hands. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, but it just doesn't stabilize. Like my, I can't get that, that position underneath the, the huh. and I haven't worked on it enough to like learn it, but uh-huh. maybe, maybe two years ago, that was my goal was to be able to hang on a one pad cramp one handed. Huh. Just hang. Just hang. <laughs> like not one arm pull ups. I'm not talking like just to be able to hang it. Uh-huh. I, I couldn't. Huh. Did you did you have a way that you were trying to progress up to it? Did, were, no, just like at the midway through a boulder session when I felt warmed up, I'd walk over to the hangboard and still can't try do it, it for ten minutes. Yeah, you know, like no, I try it for like, you know, try it, try it, try it, try it. Now do huh. like the, even if I held a sling like or something to stabilize me, uh-huh. I could do it no problem. But it was just that without any stabilization, you know, I could just put my hand against a pole. Interesting. And I could hang one hand, but I can't get that position so there's some rotational element or yeah huh. and it could be muscle imbalance and people listening to this will be like well you're an idiot you should have stretched out your pec i don't know, you know who knows but i couldn't do it that would have taken you to 515 man who knows you hey, some still, weakness still in your shoulder. yeah <laughs> that's really interesting one thing one other thing that popped out is that necessary evil is an incredibly crimpy route it's really small holds at least the what makes it hard is really bad holds and you clearly, whatever you did worked really well for that. I think you said that you got so much stronger on the holes that you were able to change some of your beta and do yeah. longer poles that were more efficient. Yeah. And then a few months later, you came to Smith and I think you climbed Big R to Bolter Not To Be and Chemical Ali. 
in like a week or two. Yeah. All 14A, all hard, all super crimpy. Yeah. But I think you were you were just training heavy on the bigger holds, and then you said you were doing body weight full crimp just for the recruitment. Yeah. So how do I, you think about that? So I think you know I don't have a background in exercise physiology. <laughs> you know, my my background is in talking with people and in you know reading books, reading stuff. But I don't have an uh, education, I guess, a formal education in exercise physiology. But to me, most stuff like the difference between an open hand and a closed hand crimp you're targeting the same muscle. So to me, that's just technique. Hmm. You know, it's just how are you recruiting those muscles? I understand that the force load on closed crimp is harder on the tendons, and you don't want to train that with the weight that I was doing. Like that that would have blown my fingers up. Hmm. But you still want to be able to recruit the muscles in the slightly, slightly shorter contraction. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I would do, just at the end of my session, I would body weight only, four fingers, closed hand crimp, and just 10 seconds. Like I didn't alternate that. Like that was just... Huh. Just a just, single? Or? Just just to recruit. Yeah, just a single, just to recruit it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And it clearly worked. I mean, who what? knows? But like this is the this is the thing. Just because <laughs> the result was that it did necessary evil doesn't mean that there might not be a more effective way of doing sure. it. Sure. Yeah. Um That's what makes all this so hard, right? You yeah. you'll never really know. Well, like everybody's different, everybody's bodies react differently. And same thing with like nutrition. Every six months, you know, you might have a dialed nutrition and then six months later it doesn't work for you hmm. so you got to kind of constantly be experimenting with yourself with training like okay that worked really well and then as soon as it doesn't and that's hard to you have to be really self-aware mm-hmm. when something's no longer working um to mix it up somehow or you know go heavier weights or go lighter or go volume or i don't know something mm-hmm. was that a small crimp that you were doing the recruitment hangs on Probably like a half pad, three quarter pad. I mean, okay. it, wasn't, it wasn't tiny. It, so it wasn't was, painful. It was more about just teaching your brain the just position. Just close the crimp. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Otherwise, you get stuck in the open hand. It's really easy to open. Like in the past, when I'd done big fingerboarding sessions, I could open hand and felt super strong. But as soon as I went to cramp, it felt uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted, I didn't want to lose that discomfort or the comfortable feeling with a closed hand crimp. Okay. And I remember you were doing the open four, you were doing different pocket teams. Were you training a half crimp position as well? No. Okay. I would do like slopers um, and then all open hand stuff. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Might not have been the most effective, but hey, it's what I had lined up for myself and I stuck to it. So yeah. that, that's something, right? Like sticking to any <laughs> training program is the hardest part. Yeah. That that might be the most important key, right? It's just pick something and do it. Yeah. <laughs> and it might, I, I don't know. I, I've, I've wasted a lot of brain power trying to nitpick to get the perfect program. And right. Just... And then you do it for two weeks and you switch it up and you mm. do another thing for two weeks because, you know, <clears> the reality <throat> is you got to pick something and like stick with it for four to six months and uh-huh. see what happens. So I think at this at that time, I think you said that you couldn't do campusing or weighted pull-ups because of your elbows. You've had some long time tendonitis and things like that in your elbows. So you were doing lat pull-downs. Yeah. Any other major exercises that you found helpful over the years or that have been kind of staples for you? No, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny because like now it's just even with the focus on bouldering now, it's a little bit different. Um, that's one thing I would say is that like I used to, back when I was competing, if I fell on a, on a route because I was, uh, I was pumped, I always thought it was because I didn't have enough endurance. Mm-hmm. And so I used to train endurance like crazy, which is why now when I go to places like the Red or Maple Canyon, they're easy for me. But um, I never really did the power training, which is probably what I should have been doing, especially when I was like 16, 17, 18. That would have mm-hmm. been great to do a lot more power training. But yeah, I basically assumed that if you got pumped, it meant because you, were, you weren't fit enough. Mm-hmm. In you know, Now I look at it a little bit differently. Now I look at it like... If you're strong enough that a crimp feels like a jug, you can rest. You know, you can relax on a crimp. Mm. 
So it'd be better just be stronger so that when you hit a bad hold, you can be more relaxed. So you're not, you know, rather than operating at 80% of your max, you're only operating at like 40% on the same hold. You're going to be able to climb for longer, you know, mm. you know, regardless of your endurance. Problem I see nowadays is a lot of boulders don't know how to recruit anything less than 100%. So <laughs> yeah. They, they go 100% for 10 moves and they're fine. And then they go 12 moves and they fall because they're <laughs> pumped out of their brain. Uh-huh. But if they learn how to climb at 20, 30, 40%, you know, which just is actually what I think hangboarding teaches you really well is how to just hold on just enough. Interesting. So you learn how to, because you're, you're squeezing, but you're not, sque- like if you're holding on for 15 seconds, you're not squeezing at 100% for 15 seconds. You're squeezing at, starts with like 20, 30, 40, and then your times will go up just as you learn how to hold. Your weights even will go up just as you learn to hold that position. And then eventually you actually start hitting the, the muscular adaptations. Huh, that's super interesting. That's my thought, at least. <laughs> Doesn't mean it's right. <laughs> Do you do anything else to teach yourself how to relax or just improve your movement economy or climb more efficiently? Well, like I said earlier, I think that is the one thing I learned from doing all the endurance training I did was okay. how to move efficiently okay. because of the fact that when you're exhausted, you still want to do the next move. You want to do the next move. You want to do the next move. So you learn how to like use your hips to generate momentum as opposed to your arms. You learn how to dead point a little bit more rather than lock off and reach. So there's things like that, which I think have benefited me not on purpose. Like I didn't didn't think about them. It wasn't a conscious decision at the time. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, I move efficiently even when I'm fresh because that's how I climbed for so long was tired. Got you. Okay. So we were just in the climbing gym and uh, at the end of the session, we were on the moon board (laughs) and we were climbing with, um, with our buddy Patrick. And I think... He was trying to work through this list of problems that he has. You know, he's trying to get to a point where he can climb each one on, on like a 30 second timer or something. And I, I just threw out this comment like, oh, I think if you could do that, like you'd probably feel really ready for your sport climbing around Vegas. You know, like, do you think that would transfer pretty well? And I just look at you and you just go, no. <laughs> well, it's different, right? Because like when you say sport climbing around Vegas, that's also generalizing. Sure. So do you mean would climbing on the moon board translate to fall of man at the VRG? No. <laughs> would it translate to climbing at Potosi? Yes. Huh. So to me, it's it was more the generalization of what sport climbing means than uh-huh. the, what the moon board. The moon board will teach you how to climb in that style. You know, if you have to jump a lot, which is what he was doing. Absolutely. That's a very useful technique and that the recruitment and all that stuff and the power, very useful for that similar stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not going to help if you want to go climb on your feet and grab small holds and you know, shift your hips very delicately, you know, like, sure. It won't. Every tool has its, you know, applications. Mm-hmm. So going back to, I, I know you're dealing with an elbow injury right now and you're not able to train at your hardest, but going back to your comment about wishing that you'd spent more time on power, is that kind of how you're thinking about moving forward with your training? Are you spending more time on that when you can? Um, well, the reality is also, you know, as you get older, the ability to recruit quickly, which is power does decrease. So that's part also why I wish I'd worked on it more when I was younger. Mm-hmm. But I'm not really sure. I'm actually kind of at a little bit of a crossroads right now. I'm mm-hmm. not because there's also like I mean I've been climbing for 30 plus years, been pushing myself hard for 20, 25 of those. There's little things like I've got little. I don't know that it's arthritis, but like my fingers are starting to hurt more mm-hmm. than they ever did. So I I need to once this elbow is sorted out, I need to like back off and see. Like I still do want to climb hard. I just don't know what that means. Hmm. I would love to have the time to back away and train for something and hopefully do 515. You know, like that would be an absolute dream. Right now, I'd be happy to do another 14C. Yeah. We'll see. You know, I, I don't know. Got you. 
So you just recently posted on Facebook sharing this article where you were interviewed. I think it was Clipping Chains. It was an article called Mike Doyle, A Remote-Controlled Climbing Life. And your post was basically, you know, I don't want to read into it too much because it was just written on the internet, but it seemed a little bit of a frustration vent, like, hey, all the you people that think I just get to go climbing all the time and have this amazing flexibility and this amazing life, I actually work my ass off and I've earned every bit of this. Um, I remember you spent some time climbing at Horn Lake years ago and you have a route called Adato. I kind of thought we could start with that. So tell me about Adato and your uh, remote controlled climbing life a little bit. Yeah, so I also want to preface this all with um, a lot of people do say, oh, it's amazing that you can climb hard even though you have a full-time job. Everybody's got distractions in their life. You know, everyone has something going on that prevents them from pushing themselves at their limit in whatever activity they're doing. It might be other activities. Maybe some people don't want to climb hard only. Some people have family. Some people have taking care of their parents. Some people have whatever, you know. My main distraction from climbing is my work. Mm -hmm. Um, But I happen to also be so focused on climbing and work that that's like pretty much sums up my life. (laughs) But the whole working remotely thing, um, I mean, I started in computer science in university because at the time it was pretty common to get a job, be there for two years, move somewhere else, be there for two years, move somewhere else. So I had these dreams of, you know, living in Europe for living in Barcelona for two years and then living in um, Southern France for two years and living in, you know, and using my job to travel. And that's always kind of been in the back of my mind. And then when I started in Vancouver working for a startup right out of university, we were working long hours, but I slowly, you know, gained the confidence of the coworkers and stuff like that, that I could take off and they would knew I would get my job done. Like, hey, I know this has to be done on Monday. I'm taking off Thursday night. It'll be done by Monday. Don't worry about it. So you have to earn that respect. You know, you mm-hmm. have to be like, if something's important, it has to be done by Monday. People don't want to see you not in the office. And so... Adato came around with, so Adato stands for another day at the office Mm -hmm. because I used to, you know, take the ferry to Vancouver Island on Friday morning and I'd work a few hours on the ferry and then I would climb Friday and then work Friday evening from a coffee shop or something like that. And then I'd work a little bit Saturday morning before climbing, climb Saturday. And then usually I try to go over to to Fino and go surfing Saturday evening, Oh, nice! surf all day Sunday and then come back. And I've had a long standing rule with where I work that there's no meetings Monday mornings. Okay. Like, don't expect to see me before noon on a Monday because I don't know what my weekend entails. I may not sleep at all. <laughs> okay. So Monday is my sleeping day. I don't want to set an alarm. I don't want to, you know, that's kind of been like you know, when I got when I got hired by a company in, in Colorado that I'd never, I didn't know anyone there. It was like standard, send a resume in, do an interview, get hired. Well, my first day, I told my boss that. <laughs> and he was just like, he's like, who are you? You can't make those demands. You know, like, you, I'm like, no, that's, that's my rule. Like no meetings before 11, you know? So yeah, that's been a long study thing. So that's kind of, I'd say the first way it started and then slowly stuff like, well, I want to go to Europe for four weeks, but I've only got two weeks of paid vacation. So I'm only going to work 20 hours a week and then extend it off. And same thing, having that communication and trust with your coworkers that you're not just slacking, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I actually moved to Seattle and the company I was working for incorporated in the US and hired me on a work visa in Seattle. Mm-hmm. So then and that was the first time I truly worked remotely and I haven't looked back and that was, you know, 12 13 years ago. Yeah. Right on. You still work a lot though. Yeah, it's not a good thing. <clears throat> um like it's 
is I, that you? I'm curious. Is that you? Can you not help yourself, or or do you work for a company that that's what the demand is? Um, I definitely like when I was working for the company based out of Colorado. Uh-huh. Um, I wasn't working as much as I am now, and even when I started at this company, I wasn't working as much as I am now. Right now, we're at a very interesting point in the company. It's still, I want to call it a startup, even though I've been there for uh, eight years. We're at an interesting point where it could be, you know. I, I keep saying this, I've been saying this for the last few years, but uh-huh. it could be successful, like, you know, around the corner. But okay. right now we're, we've got a lot of demands from customers and a lot of demands from technology that we're trying to adapt to and learn. So mm. you've got schedules where you're like, okay, I need to learn this technology, but then everything's getting interrupted by customers' demands as well. And mm. like I, you know, the past two weeks has been incredibly ridiculous. Like even it's a Saturday afternoon right now, it's raining in Las Vegas. Uh, Thursday night at 11 o'clock at night, just as I was getting ready to shut down my computer, I got an email from a company in Germany and they, there was a problem. And so they were getting ready to release on the Friday and we had sent them stuff six to eight months ago. So I had to work all night Thursday night to figure out, first of all, if the problem was our fault or if it was something they were doing wrong. Turns out it was our fault, which as soon as that happens, I you know ramp up my effort level. Mm-hmm. Managed to get them a fix at like 5.30 in the morning, but that's, they're eight or nine hours ahead. So, you know, that was, they still had a few hours uh, to deliver their stuff. Then I had a meeting with a different company at 7 a.m. Oh my gosh. And then I had a different meeting at like 11. And so it basically was up all day Friday. And then another issue came in at like Friday at, you know, five o'clock. Yeah. So it's just, you know, stuff's happening. And I, I mean, yeah, like it's easy to say, oh, you know, just tell your boss to, you know, fuck off or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's a startup. It's people I've known for a long time. We all work hard. It's not like just one or two people and then a bunch of slackers. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's basically like stuff's got to get done. It's hard for me also just to step away from my job. Uh-huh. The stuff I'm working on right now is very complicated. So it's hard to just step away when your mind's still churning. Mm-hmm. And it's actually that I think more than anything in the last few years has affected my climbing more than, you know, I can't walk up to the crag and be like, okay, I'm ready to try hard my mind's exhausted i'm burned out Hmm. so like even if i turn on my computer at all in the morning my mind's on work you know Hmm. even on a saturday or something like that so i I really have to try and not force myself but just not think about it like don't turn on the computer in the morning just wake up have my oatmeal and peanut butter and banana (laughs) coffee and watch some hockey highlights or something like that and then Uh like slowly start stretching and working your way to going climbing and then i can have a really good day but okay if I just like step off from work and go climbing, it's usually not a good day. <laughs> Got you. Yeah. So that was going to be my next question. Is there anything else that you've done to create boundaries for yourself? Yeah, there is little things. Like I, I will book vacation times and stuff like that. Okay. Um, but generally, if something needs to be done, I'd rather just get it done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's kind of lame, but like work is more important right now than climbing. Mm-hmm. Um well, that's interesting. It seems like that's evolved. So at first you went down this career path, it sounds like, so that you know, because you had this dream of being able to spend two years in Barcelona and yeah. bounce around. Has that changed? Yeah, but even back then, I would spend 40, 68 hours a week working and then climbing was kind of always this like on the side fun thing. Even when I was in the early 2000s competing and red pointing and trying to do stuff, it was still like if something came up like that competition in Mexico that I went to, like it would have been great if I didn't have that project the week before, you know, mm-hmm. but it did and that's you know, that was more important. And maybe it's a little bit of like, don't want to let down coworkers. I'm not sure, but it's definitely like if something has to be done, I just want to get it done. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this question will work or if it'll make sense, but is there a point at which you'd be bummed? Like if this kept going on for another five years, you know, I mean, you, you're working 60 plus hours a week. 
you must like it to some extent to still be doing it. You must care about it and, and yeah. find some purpose in it or something. But I imagine that it's not ideal. So yeah, how are you thinking about that? I try not to. <laughs> no, I. Uh, I mean, this isn't a. This isn't a. Is this isn't a new discussion or new topic of conversation or new point of view? Yeah. I mean, like in 2015, I told myself I'd give it two years. Okay. Because I was already pushing too hard and it was just exhausting. And it's unfortunately in like 2017 when I that cutoff came, it was like some stuff had happened. I learned some different things. But now I'm now I'm in. Like I'm kind of uh, ride or die with, okay. with this with this company. Um, it could fail tomorrow. You know, that's definitely a possibility or it could be successful. And that's, you know, but what I'm looking at now is not necessarily, it's not going to be the sell for a billion dollars and I get to ride off into the sunset. Like that's never going to happen. That was never even the dream. What I do want is to have a little more flexibility in my project timelines, not necessarily work hours, but like work hard for six months and then be able to take three months off. Mm. And so I'm kind of trying to get towards that, like even in discussions with my company about a four-day work week even, which I would work five days a week, six, seven days a week, mm-hmm. but then be able to take a month with no work and mm-hmm. go to, to Europe or something like that. Because right now, even though in theory I could work from Europe, I'd have to take a bunch of devices when I when I work. Yeah, you have a really elaborate setup. Yeah, and so it's like really hard to travel with that. Like even, uh-huh. even working remotely as I do now, it's kind of stressful moving between places if I don't know what my setup will be like when I get there. Yeah. And so it's like, it's nice to be somewhere for a month, two months, something like that and get settled and set up and know what that's like. Um, as opposed to being like, you know, going somewhere for 10 days and somewhere else for 10 days. Like that just, that doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. I think in that article you had written, and again, I'll link to it in the show notes. You had said that since 2018, April, 2018, you've been in quotes, extra remotely. What does that look like? I know you came out to Smith for a long time. Exactly. A month like or longer. Two months in Smith. Yeah. Um, so the winter of 2017, 2018, I mean, I'm pretty honest with this. I was depressed for sure. I wasn't mm-hmm. even leaving the house. I was working so much. The weather wasn't great that winter, but it didn't matter. Like the climbing that around Vegas that inspires me, I'd done most of it. And I don't have time to do the long routes that are also really inspiring. And bouldering has never really been a passion of mine. So like, while there's a lot of new bouldering around here and there's a lot of stuff, that's not enough to like make me want to leave the house. I know that sounds lame, but so basically I was just working nonstop, wasn't leaving the house. And I realized I had to make a change and the traveling a little bit more, I'd lived in Vegas at that point for eight years nonstop. And Vegas is awesome. I absolutely love it. Love the people here, love the community, love the climbing. But after eight years, I needed something different. I needed to, one, I wasn't climbing as well as I used to. So the projects I've left are all 14 pluses that aren't necessarily fun. Like some stuff up Charleston, like mono dinos and stuff like that. You've got to kind of suffer to do them. Yeah. But I knew there was things like, you know, I could go to Smith Rock and I have really, really good friends there. I've climbed there a bunch. It's like a, a second home for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I went up there, set up shop for like two months, had a great time. And then I went up to, into Canada and went up and spent like two months in the Canadian Rockies mm-hmm. and um, had a great time there. And then went to the Red River Gorge for two months and basically moving between places where the climbing's there, but it's not the focus. The focus is more, hey, like I haven't seen people in a while. You're good friends. Like drag mm. me out, you know? Okay. <laughs> um, and I said that like to a lot of people. I'm like, look, drag me out at three o'clock in the afternoon. Like grab me physically and like drag me out because like I need to get out and do something. Yeah. And then I come back at 10 o'clock at night and work until three in the morning. But don't, don't, don't tell them that. Um, but yeah, it's basically like just, I just need to change the scenery. Uh-huh. And it's been good. It's also been 
interesting and I've learned some things that work and some things that don't is kind of, I'm kind of still constantly reflecting on what should I do next and um, what's, you know, yeah, what's worked. Um, mm-hmm. And that's helping to kind of define where I want to, how I want to move forward. Do you have any practical things that help you with your productivity when you're transitioning to a new physical workspace? No, I mean, there's like, uh, there's a few routines I have. Like I want to make sure I can have, you know, my coffee in the morning. Okay. Um, and then I, there's some things I look for, which is like, I want the climbing to be pretty close. I don't want to waste time midweek when coworkers are communicating and stuff like that. I don't want to waste time traveling or commuting to the climbing. Mm-hmm. And because it turns up a, a four hour day into a, a six, seven hour day. Mm-hmm. I like to be able to run right out of the, right out of my house or right out of my accommodations. I don't want to have to commute to run. I don't enjoy running enough to drive somewhere to run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little things like that. Okay. You had mentioned your keyboard, I think because of your climbing forearms and yep. elbows and stuff like that. Do you have a recommendation for a specific brand or style of keyboard? Well, I've had a, a Kinesis is the brand of it. Okay. And it's the best description would be like you're typing in two bowls, two concave um, huh. surfaces, and the, the keys are adjusted for the length of your fingers. It's generic, but it's like the, the pinky keys are smaller and closer together than like the middle finger keys. Hmm. And you've got, I think, six buttons for each thumb, like space, space bar, backspace, page up, page down, that kind of stuff. So you never have to move your wrists at all. Like my wrists are stable and they're supported. Whoa. Whereas like typing on a laptop, the back of my forearms seize up. I mean, even now, like I've been using this keyboard since 2002. And even now, if I tried to type on a laptop for half a day, my forearms would seize up. Mm-hmm. And so there's, I'm sure there's lots of stuff you could do about it. I'd rather just yeah. get a keyboard. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll find that and link to it in the show notes. You said Kinesis? Yeah. Okay. I don't, I don't even know if the company still exists. I okay. hope they do. I mean, like I said, I've had this keyboard for almost 20 years. Okay. And it well, looks like it. It looks disgusting. Okay. <laughs> if nothing else, I'll find one that's similar. Uh, what about a mouse? Anything in particular? No, I, t- I switched a long time ago to my non-dominant hand, so I moved to my left hand for mousing. But Why is that? My wrist was starting to bother me on the huh. right hand, so I just moved to my non-dominant hand, and it I haven't had an issue since. How long did it take you to adjust to that? A couple games of Minesweeper. <laughs> I don't know how many, I, a little bit, you know. But. Is that offhand mouse training? Yeah, Minesweeper? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's cool. So one thing we just kind of brushed over, you were up in the Canadian Rockies, but you recently repeated the Canadian Rockies Alpine Trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. I did that uh, summer of 2018. Okay. Yep. So that's three routes. They're all multi-pitch routes, big routes that are 14A. Warhammer, 14A, 15 pitches. The Shining Uncut, 12 pitches. Blue Jeans Direct, six pitches. Tell me about that. So, yeah, so Sonny Trotter had this vision to try and bring, like, the, the European, I think it's one in Switzerland, one in Austria, one in France, something like that, the Alps trilogy to North America. And he hiked around and did a bunch of scouting. And he had put up The Shining with Tommy Caldwell years ago. And there's a funny video of them taking a lawn chair up the, the wall, if you ever want to see that. And then he did... I'll link to it. Castles in the Sky. And there's actually a good video for that one, too. And then he did... Then there was another route called Blue Jeans, and what he did was variations on those those three to create three hard multi-pitch routes. Hmm. So going to the Canadian Rockies, that was in the back of my mind that I would have liked to have done them. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to sound arrogant, but you're going to call them soft. No, no, I just I knew <laughs> that I could do five fourteen, not being in shape. Oh, okay, so I'm not trying to like, but even if I wasn't in shape, I can go do five fourteen, and those these seemed like I could do fourteen a, like I can't do you know, but it seemed like a fun objective. You know, in the mountains, work the routes. It might take me days and days and days of hiking back and forth, but I knew that I could do them mm-hmm. as opposed to like going to the Rockies and be like, I want to do 14C. 
and then maybe not having the ability or not having the, the mental uh, capacity or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't know if I would be able to logistically have the time to go do these routes. So in the back of my mind, that was already there, and I'd already knew I was going to the Rockies. And then Sasha, Sasha Zulian, reached out. And she's like, "Hey, I'm looking for a partner for these routes. I want to go do them. You oh, know, cool. Would you Would you want to?" And I've known her for many years, and I told her straight up, "Like, no, like I'm not the right <laughs> guy for you. Like, I'm I, I might bail on you the day before if work comes up. I'm only a weekend warrior. Like, you definitely want to try and meet other people. Uh-huh. And there's a strong community of climbers there. Like, you you know, you won't have a problem finding people." And then some stuff went down with her. She had a partner lined up and like um, uh, some drama. She was basically scrambling. She already had some videographers lined up to come film her on this one route. And she did, wanted to go up with someone that she knew, basically. Mm-hmm. And I initially was like, no, because I'm already going climbing with this other person the next day on the same route. And they're massive approaches. I didn't want to go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Finally, I was like, yeah, like, let's go. Like, I, I want to help you. Let's Let's go. And I had so much fun. Like, it was just... The one we were on was Castles in the Sky, Warhammer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just perfect weather. The route itself is shockingly spectacular. I put it up as one of my top routes of all time. Like one oh, of my wow. top climbing experiences of all time. Huh. Because it's this overhanging arete. Like Warhammer is four pitches of 5.11 to this ledge. And then you launch into like two pitches of 5.10. And then a long pitch of 5.14 to, I think it's a 5.12, 5.10, And then you... We have to, we don't have to, but then we did uh, Eisenhower Tower at the top, which is eight, nine pitches of five, eight. We just free soloed it. Oh, sick. But castles in the sky, you come across this ledge. So you skip that first four pitches uh-huh. and you walk across this ledge. But Got it. you start on the small ledge, you're already, you know, 400 feet in the air. Uh-huh. And then you do two pitches. So now you're six pitches in the air, 600 feet in the air. Yeah. And you start up this wildly overhanging rat. Yeah. The, the 14A moves, pitch? The 14A pitch. Yeah. And you actually have to pull a roof, you know, 700 feet in the air or something like that. And That's I remember being sick. like scared out of my mind. <laughs> like it was just super exposed. And I had just come off doing Spank the Monkey and East Face and Smith. I thought my mental game was pretty strong. Yeah. And that first day I was so wigged out. Like I couldn't relax. I was wow. so scared. And it's closely bolted. I mean, Sonny bolted it so that even if you're not a 514 climber, you could second it. Oh, you know, cool. So you can actually pull between the, the draws or at least you only have to do one or two moves between mm-hmm. draws because it's steep. If you're seconding, it's actually, you know, you want uh, protection to be pretty close. Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't scary in terms of runouts or anything like that. It was yeah. just the exposure and the, the setting and the scene was so wild <laughs> that, yeah, I kind of got, uh, really enjoyed it and then had a great time out there with, with Sunny and Sasha. And I remember telling her, like, you know, that day, I'm like, hey, like, I want right of first refusal. Like, hit me up if you're going out. I will let my company know. Like, I actually email <laughs> my boss, like, that night. I was like, hey, like, uh, you know, there's something that I want to do this summer. It's important to me. I might give you guys 24 hours notice and I might not be at work, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, I've earned their respect enough that they, yeah. you know, they're like, yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Yeah. Right of first re- refusal. Yeah, I, right, I like that. I've right of first that. refusal. I've never heard that before. I like that. So I went back the next day with uh, Sam Tucker and he was working that route and didn't do it. And then Sasha went back that week a few times with some other partners. And then we went back on the Saturday and we did the full Warhammer. Awesome. Um, so it was like, yeah, and then after that... Was that it, in a film I could find somewhere? Sasha just released... Um, I don't know if it's it's available yet publicly, but she's been doing a bit of a tour with it. Okay. And there's some footage, I think, on the Red Bull site, but it's like unscripted, just some, some raw footage. Okay. But I think she will be touring it or at least put, making it available at some point. But the focus is on her, and she definitely went through some stuff that summer that, you know, injuries and 
dealing with weather and stuff. So she had her own challenges, mm-hmm. but she like when she turns it on, she goes like, it's uh, so impressive, you know, oh, like, cool. like the roots aren't that physically difficult for, her, but some of the challenges of like with her injury and stuff like that, like, she just, yeah, when she turns it on, she goes, it's so impressive. Cool. But yeah, so then the next one we did was the shining. We went right to it. Like the shining uncut, I guess we went right to that one. Like I think we did Warhammer on a Friday and we actually were on the shining on sa- Sunday, you know, you and Sasha. Yeah. Okay. And then just worked out the sequences. Um, <laughs> didn't get back into more like 10 at night or something ridiculous because that one's like a five-hour approach to the base oh climb. wow is that are they all these similar in that there's like a 14a pitch and then the or any of them more sustained where they have a lot yes. more harder pitches yeah and they're also very different in terms of climbing style oh interesting but so i had been on the shining with josh wharton the year before we went okay. out we were there for a slideshow thing and we went out to just get on the shining we only did the crux pitch which is um so you have to hike in you know well with josh wharton it was like 25 minutes but it's like two hours in <laughs> and then you have to scramble up this like gully where i think there's like one pitch of maybe five nine ten a that is actually bolted but you that's like a thousand foot of elevation maybe 14 pitches or something like that i can't remember what the oh wow you don't really call them it's just scrambling but uh-huh. you, when you wrap i think it's 12 to 14 pitches down the gully oh my gosh and then it's like dead vertical like really really fun crimp technical climbing so that's what i thought all the routes were like so when I walked up to Castles in the Sky and it's this wildly overhanging... Got you. I, I didn't... I remember just being like, we're going up there? Like, <laughs> what? Why, why are we doing that? I thought we were going to climb. Like, I had, And I had stiff shoes. Like, just whatever. Um, but so, yeah. So Castles in the Sky is like one pitch of 514, mostly much, much easier. I think that one pitch of 512A and mm-hmm. then 511. Um, the Shining... The Shining itself is 12C, 12D, 13C, 12B, 12C... 11 d 10 c something like that okay but the shining uncut because the first three pitches are all at hanging blaze just mm. links those three pitches got it so then it becomes 14a it's an 80 or 45 meter pitch or something like that yeah no, 80 meter pitch yeah we had to stretch 80 i actually you had to stretch an 80 yeah i actually took the knot out of the end of the rope to allow sasha to clip the anchor oh my her. god yeah wow yeah it's huge how uh, did she uh trail a second rope at that one, we actually had a, a fixed lineup. Okay. And then because you can repel, the, there's intermediate anchors, right? Because you can oh, right. three pitches. Yeah. So you can repel yourself down. Okay. If you need to. Um, but then blue jeans is, I'd say it's the most sustained. It's physically the hardest, but it's also the easiest to get to. It's only a mm. you know 45 minute, one hour hike, something like that. But that one's like 12B, pretty physical, to a long, really fun 12D, to a really physical 12D, and then a pitch that they call 13A, but it's more like 13B, I don't know, maybe even 13C. It's really hard hmm. to the 14A pitch. Okay. So wow. Yeah. That one's a little more stacked, but you can also be at the 14A pitch like three hours from the car, you know, mm-hmm. whereas the other one, you're not, you're still hiking three yeah. hours from the car. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I did the, I actually did the blue jeans direct after a day of work. Like I left my, uh, oh wow, left my house at, or left my office at like two and did it and then got back and, you know had some beers nice but the other ones were full days like gotcha. leave at 4 a.m you know hike in hike out what was the timeline that you did all three of them in was this just over the course of a summer up yeah there? over the course of summer and then uh-huh. dealing with weather and stuff like that i think for me it was three days on Warhammer, two days on the shining and then another two days to do the shining uncut so four days and then three days on blue jeans direct but one of them sorry ed uh my buddy came out and he ruptured his bicep following me. Oh, so we had to, oh. that was, I didn't get to the crux pitch that day. Oh man. That's yeah. brutal. Yeah. 
How's the rock quality on those? It's the Rockies. <laughs> <laughs> no, the crux pitches are all good. It's the all the other stuff in between. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> I think Sasha alludes to it in her video. I have seen it. Yeah, there's just like there's some sections of cobbled together mud mm. for sure. It's wow, the Rockies a very high altitude. It's mm-hmm. actually not high altitude. It's just the freeze thaw up there is fairly significant. So the rock itself is uh, on those things is. There's some sections of you got to be you got to know what you're know what you're doing. For instance, like when we did Eisenhower Tower, we're free soloing, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, several thousand feet up or whatever. And yeah, you're you're grabbing all these bricks, but you're like, I really hope this. You know, like you had to be you just had to be cautious. Like mm-hmm. it was easy five eight, but you just had to be slow and move much slower than honestly we moved slower than I would have expected. Mm-hmm. Um, so the timing was a little bit tricky, but mm-hmm. um. We also didn't go up the easy way up Eisenhower, which we should have. I don't know. We were just basically <laughs> cruising. Yeah, yeah. Having fun. Yeah. Cool. Got you. Were you mixing in other days while you were working on these three routes? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would still climb it. Like, there was a, a crag near where I was saying called Planet X, and there's a, mm. there's so much good cragging around yeah. the Bow Valley and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I was definitely... And you couldn't... Like, they're massive days. Like, you you know, even just the hiking was so exhausting. You wouldn't want to go back multiple times, you know. Got it. So you'd take like kind of two, three days off minimum mm-hmm. in between sessions or in between a, a days. And in those days, I'd go out and, you know, hang out with friends and maybe not try to push it. But I think I did, um, I think I did a couple 514s that summer outside nice. the, the trilogy. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. Is there anything else up there that you're psyched to go back for? I'm going back again this summer. So I went back. So that was 2018. I went back 2019. Yeah. For the whole summer and a really good setup up there lots of good friends it's gorgeous i'm going back again this summer i don't know how my elbow will mm-hmm. heal up so i'm not really setting any climbing goals but i mean it's also just so much fun just and i enjoy kind of long fitness days in the mountains so i want to go and just do some like big you know big days in the in the and it's not necessarily like mountaineering but like scrambling and stuff like that It'd be fun cool so I actually want to bounce back to Necessary Evil a little bit. I know it's old news. It's five years ago that you did this now, and you're probably tired of hearing about it. But there's a really great video that came out of that, and it's an athlete spotlight on you. I think it was put out by Sportiva, filmed by Joe Kinder. Yeah. And yeah, Joe did a great job. He did a really great job. It's an amazing video. I'll link to it. It's called Necessary Diligence. Yeah. And, it, I mean, it's amazing, but the the core theme that kind of keeps coming up in that video is that you chose this route because you really wanted something that would challenge you. Yeah. And, and I have a quote from you in that video. You said, I wanted to challenge this winter that would make me have to become a better rock climber, have to train, have to focus, have to change my lifestyle a little bit, get back in shape, lose weight, something that would bring all of that together. How was that experience overall? Was that something that you enjoyed? I mean, yeah. And I mean, this is something that, you know, you learn over the years to be a little bit more, you know, grateful, that kind of stuff. But the community really rallied. And it wasn't just one person. It was like a, many people that like, you know, I had many people reaching out being like, hey, like if you need a belay ever, let me know. I'll come out and belay you. People that had no interest in actually rock climbing at the VRG. They just huh. wanted to come and belay. And then there was also other friends that would pick projects out there just to be able to come out and have a reason to be there. Mm-hmm. The VRG is not necessarily the most pleasant place to hang out. Right. You're, um, you're right above the highway. Right above the freeway. But it's uh, the climbing's amazing for sure. But yeah, I mean, it was a, uh, it was nice to dedicate myself to something that was so, so hard for me. Mm. Um, and that always, I think, kind of going back to the competition climbing, entering a competition six months, eight months in advance, gave me a reason to train and focus on something. Hmm. Outdoor climbing has always been my definitely my passion. 
but it's always there, you know? Mm-hmm. And then road trips, I actually haven't, like, especially when I was living in Vancouver, I didn't actually travel that much. And that's something that, again, looking back, is because all my spare time was I was actually coaching. So mm-hmm. I didn't travel for myself for many years. Picking something like Necessary Evil that I knew would challenge me, you know, above and beyond. I had already climbed many of the routes around Vegas in terms of, like, uh, the stuff up at Potosi and Clark Mountain and Cathedral and, and all those routes. And they were awesome, loved them. But they were all, like, kind of two, three-week projects, you know, maybe maybe a month. But this one I knew was going to be big. And actually, mm-hmm. I expected it to do it the first winter. I expected to do it in 2014. And at the end of that season, I was actually shocked I hadn't done it. Oh, really? And part of me was a little upset because I was falling, like, one-hanging it casually. But, yeah, I was kind of surprised I hadn't done it. So then I was like, okay, well, I'm coming back again. And mm-hmm. I, even though I was like, do I want to? Do I really want to come back again? <laughs> yeah. And I'm not going to like if I hadn't done it in 2015, I'm not sure that I would. Like, I, I don't know. I probably would have because I'm stubborn. But <laughs> I don't know. It's not easy to, like, fail at something when you try that hard. You yeah. Know? And then yeah. go back for it. So, I don't know. I, I'm glad I did it. Because <laughs> uh-huh. then I didn't have to go back. I know this question might not make the most sense because you are dealing with this elbow thing. You spoke to this earlier. You don't know what's next for you. But do you crave that sort of thing? Like, do you hope to find that focusing project again? I guess, do you enjoy living that way where you have something that's focusing yes your diet and, and all these no. other things? Okay. Um, right now, with my work being the way it is, climbing has to be a little bit of, of that. Uh, escape that I was talking to you about earlier. Mm. If I take climbing too seriously right now, it's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. So even when I was up in Smith Rock last year, it was fun to just cruise around and do the obscure tour, I think I was calling it, you know, like <laughs> yeah. that had zero stars in the book. Um, I got a kick out of that. Yeah, Peep Show was like, you know, the highlight of the trip for sure. Anyone that's going to Smith Rock, there's a 12A, B thing. I don't even know what's rated. It's called Peep Show. It's phenomenal. It has no chalk on it. Just go do it. <laughs> 40 plus meters of slab crimping. Amazing, yeah. <laughs> um, so right now I'm glad, I, like, I don't really want to project anything too hard because it just takes so much mental energy to try mm-hmm. 100%, mm-hmm. to go to the crag, focus on the, you know, and then fall and fail and fail and fail because that's the vast majority of what I do is just fail. Um, so it's more fun to go out and just cruise and try to on-site or do routes second, third try, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And for me, really it is right now, it is going out with friends that I want to go hang out with. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really matter that much where I go. I want a physical challenge, so, but so, as long as there's something there. But I'm happy. Like honestly, it's more fun net for me now to go out and support people and be the asshole at the Craig, telling them what they're doing wrong. You know, like, <laughs> and that's called support, by the way. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like I'm having a lot more fun lately when I go out climbing. It's it's much more fun for me to see other people succeed than uh-huh. my own, for sure. Cool. So you obviously sent the route. Do you think that process made you better? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like even you mentioned earlier, like I went up to Smith Rocks. Yeah. You uh, smashed it. Well, and I'd been on something like the Big R quite a bit before. Oh, okay. And I went and did it third try that spring. Oh, like, wow. I was that much better. You know? Yeah. Do you think it's stuck with you like in a lasting way? Do you think that experience had a lasting positive effect on your climbing? Beyond the physical adaptations? Beyond like crushing that season. Yeah. I would say so. It, you know, there's also like... The takeaways are, you know, you can push it. Um, mm. But I mean, honestly, like I said, the the thing I walked away from that season that I will remember and cherish is just how many people came out to belay and mm. support and cheer. And then not just that, like I had, I put up a post, like it kind of became a bit of a joke how long I was trying it and how much I was trying it. <laughs> um, but like the first time I linked through, there's there's three boulder problems on it. 
And the first time I linked through the bottom two and I fell at the red point crux, I remember being super excited and texting some friends in Vegas and being like, hey, I linked the two boulder problems, super psyched. And they're like, rad. And then like the next day I linked twice in a day up to that move. So like number two, like number uh, number two and three. And then it was like, felt the red point crux three times. Oh, felt the red point crux five. And I think I ended up falling at the red point crux 58 times. Or I, I, There was <laughs> I a number. It, I have it written down and yes, it's, <laughs> it's 58. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty odd. <laughs> of course I remember that. Um, but yeah, but like, but I have people like, I'd be like, yep, yeah, 36 times. And people are like, don't worry about it, man. You got it. Like the <laughs> friends from Europe, friends from Australia being like, yeah, man, don't worry. You got to keep stick with it. So cheering for you. And, and yeah. I didn't feel pressure to do it, outside pressure to do it, but I mm-hmm. did definitely feel the support. And I, I'm never going to forget that. That's awesome. That's yep. so cool. I mean, that's the story that I think is most inspiring to all of us, right? Like when we see someone doing all the things, having to train, having to focus, having to change your lifestyle, when we see someone doing that and giving their all to something, whether or not they pull it off or not, it's, that's just always a really neat and inspiring thing to see. So, Yeah, like even the video awesome. that Joe put together, I mean, both him and I were hoping that I would do it that season. <laughs> it would make the video a little, a little, you always want that little send at the end. But uh-huh. the fact that I didn't send that year and then you know, he released the That's video. Right. Was, so I don't send in that. That's right. Yeah. That video. And it's actually kind of funny because looking at it now, I actually like that part of it. Yes. I think it's a better video. Yeah. For that. It's, so it's like, no, like I'm, I'm augered in here. I'm going to yeah. keep working, you know? And yeah. Yeah. It was kind of a funny little, not the twist that I would have wanted, but yeah. That's awesome. At the end of that, you said, you were talking about whether or not you were going to walk away from the thing if you didn't send. And you said, I don't think I've ever walked away from a route before. Yeah. I found that fascinating. What, well, do you, what did you mean by that? Like literally, like you had never left unfinished business or... No, like um, it was actually, I think Joe got mad at me because I, I said that line a few different ways. And uh-huh. as he's interviewing me and as I'm trying to kind of say the dialogue, part of me was like, I didn't want to put pressure on myself. At the same time, I wanted to do it. At uh-huh. the same time, I don't want to like have to do it. Am I okay walking? And, and all these things are going through my mind as yeah. I'm answering this question. Uh-huh. And he's kind of like... Like there's different versions of that ending actually because of the fact that I say the same thing different ways and then all of a sudden I counter like contradict myself and like part of me's like yeah I don't really care that much but I want to fucking do it and then oh you know like I really hope I do it but at the same time it's okay you know like because I hadn't done it yet right so I was fighting with those emotions in the moment because he asked me like something pretty similar like hey, he's like do you really want to do it or how are you gonna feel if you don't do it mm-hmm. and so I'm kind of just you know rambling and yeah I never really processed that thought before so i didn't really know how to answer it yeah and so i don't have a lot of unfinished business out there okay um there's a few routes but okay. to that point i'm not sure that there are there was yeah, okay i think i'd done almost everything that i project wow you know um that's amazing like even in smith just do it i wish i had done that year when i was feeling good but i took it too lightly mm. um I was going to ask you about that one. Yeah. Um, still on the list. It's still on the list. It's yeah. just such an iconic route. Yeah. Um, I mean, Smith Rock was the first place I road trip to. Oh, cool. Um, I remember walking up and looking at the route when I couldn't even climb 512 and just being inspired by it. In fact, in my high school yearbook, there's like a buddy of mine that I climbed with a bunch, drew a little thing being like, 514C, just do it. We're going to get there one day. And so oh, like, no kidding. Like part of me's like, I still got to get there, you know? <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's still on the list. It's spectacular. And it's like, I truly enjoy rock climbing on it. You know? Yeah. That's um, awesome. I was hoping to do it this year. Just that's not going to happen. Um, yeah, it's on the list. Cool. Yeah. A few things around here in, around Vegas that I haven't done that I've put significant time into. Mm. I'm not sure they're fun enough to go back to, but we'll, we'll okay. see. Um, Got you. And I'm not really too sure. 
I don't nice. normally project on the road. I prefer to on-site. Uh-huh. So that's one reason why I don't really have that much unfinished business. Okay. Tell me about that. So if you don't get an on-site, do you, do you make sure you get the red point or do you just move on? Depends on the route. Okay. If it was worth getting on a second time or if it was like a hold broken ready to anchor, I'm not going to get on it a second time. Okay. But yeah, generally if the on-site was like, you know, felt casual and I just screwed something up, maybe not, maybe, or maybe I'll wait to at the end of the day and another day if I'm mm. in the same area, but mm-hmm. it's just depends on the route. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything specific that you're thinking about when you're going for an on-site uh, as far as uh, preparing any way that you're looking for clues from the ground? Oh, or... absolutely. Yeah. I mean... You can, you know, get as much information as possible by looking at it. Stuff like if there's a hole that has a bunch of chalk on it, chances are it's a rest. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of gun for that. Make sure that if there's an obvious hole that you're like, you look up there and there's like one pocket and it's way out right. You're like, okay, I got to get that with my right hand. So make sure that you, you know, setting up for that. But generally I try to also just, like on site is much different than red pointing because you don't know when the next rest is, is mm-hmm. I think the biggest challenge. So when you get to rest, just make sure that you get as much recovery as you can and then punch forward from there. Hmm. The worst thing, and it's definitely caught me a few times, is when you're like, you know the grade of the route, and you're like, oh, it's 13A, you know, so you're like, you're off the ground, you screw, maybe you screwed up the beta, or maybe it's just a really hard route. But you're like, oh, man, that, I've already done 13A, like, it's right. got to be casual. I've already earned top. it. Yeah, I've yeah. already earned the 13A grade. And then also you're climbing, you're like, oh, my God, this is, I'm still, I'm still working here. Like, totally. This, yeah. It's such a funny thing. And also you get to the anchors, and the, the crux is right at the anchors. Uh-huh. You're like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. So I try to, I try not to think about the grade too, too much, but at the same time, you don't want to... And I understand that some people actually say, if you know the grade, it's not even on-siding. But sure. That's um, almost impossible these days. Yeah. Or if you have bolts and chalk, it's not whatever. Um, <laughs> but like, try to like, you know, if I'm going on like 12A on-site and I'm warming up, make sure I'm not climbing 513, then you're just being dumb. Mm-hmm. But on harder routes, you kind of just want to get through. Who cares if it's like, just get through the sequence. Like, doesn't matter if you screw it up, just get to the next rest mm. and recover. You okay. Know? So tend to just kind of like, if I can do the move, I do the move, you know, and just keep moving. Even if you're making it harder. Even if I'm making it harder, unless you can obviously back off. You yeah. Know, if, you're, if you're committed to a sequence, just commit. Like, mm. you're, you're going. Yeah. Cool. So in that video, Necessary Diligence, you're wearing Testarossas. I think at Smith, I've seen you wear those and maybe the Mira Velcros. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite climbing shoe or different go-to shoes for different areas? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say it's more the different go-to shoes for different areas. Yeah. The one shoe that's really worked its way into my my arsenal is the Genius. Okay. Um, Interesting. Even though it's no-edge technology, I actually mm-hmm. wear the Genius on Just Do It. No kidding. Yeah. It makes the bottom. that So Just Do It has like a 13D first pitch yeah. and then links into roughly, or 13D, 14A, depending. It's like dead vertical, really thin, Dead vertical, technical. super thin, and then links into a steep, the steep red rock up there. That's yeah. kind of like maybe 14B in its own right or 14A in its own right. Um, but it makes the upper part easier to wear these soft shoes. Mm-hmm. So, but it makes the hard part, the lower part harder. I imagine it does. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like a trade-off. But um, huh. the genius, like I didn't like the No Edge technology when it first came out. So this is a La Sportiva lace-up version of the No Edge. So it's yep. a rounded edge instead yep. of a yeah. Yep. So it's a, designed to smear. Uh-huh. Um, but climbing up at Mount Charleston, up at the hood, it's all porcelain, like really horrible feet. And I'd kind of like had them, had tried them a little bit, but wasn't really super psyched on them and the way i judge a shoe and make a choice is like how many moves does it make easier and how many moves does it make harder you know mm. standard kind of stuff and i was wearing the solutions up on this route um it's hasta la vista kind of a pocket really bad feet hard boulder problems and the solutions were fine but like i'm like oh, i'm gonna try the genius there's this one traverse section where you're just smearing on porcelain and it shouldn't be that hard but it was always just insecure mm-hmm. so then i tried the genius and it made like 35 moves easier 
of wow. 62 moves or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, and only three moves harder, if I remember right. You know, like I, I actually like thought about it. I was like, holy crap, like, this is amazing. And so then huh. they've become my kind of go-to on-sighting shoe. Uh, yeah. Because they work really, really well on everything except if you have to lift your heel and truly, truly edge. But if mm-hmm. you can just smear or bring your feet high, they're amazing. And they just stick to anything. So if I'm on-sighting and I don't know what's coming up, they're kind of like the shoe that I want to wear. Hmm. You don't have to be as precise with them. You have to be precise, okay. but they'll stick to stuff where if you hit a hold and you just need your foot over to the right and you just, you need it over there, mm-hmm. they'll stick to whatever's over there. Okay. Like it doesn't matter what it is. They'll stick enough that you can then balance and, you know, get set, and readjust your hand huh. and then maybe find a better foothold. Huh. You know, but they're, yeah, they're amazing. Cool. Have you always worn Sportiva? Not always, but I've been on the Sportiva team for a long time, I think almost 20 years. Okay. So... I've tried other shoes in the last few years, just kind of like every so often sample. But I mean, like obviously I love La Sportiva and I'm, I'm sponsored by them, but that's not, they fit me. And I think yeah. that's always the most important thing. Like even when people ask me, they're like, oh, I really like those shoes, but they don't fit. I'm like, well, then they're not for you. Like don't mm-hmm. um, find the brand that find the brand fits. And then yeah. rubber does matter. I think the Sportiva rubber is, you know, as good as anything out there. Mm-hmm. I think they've done a lot of work in that department. And I think there's a lot of worse brands out there. Mm. Right on. What about your? Do you have a go-to stiff shoe for more face stuff? Yeah, I, I like the uh, the Mira lace up. Like oh, okay. I, I wore the Mira lace up on pretty much anything where it's like dead edging. You know, like where you're just kind of like, you get, and you get, I get those tights, so and my you know my foot doesn't get doesn't have to do that much work when mm-hmm. I'm edging on something. Is um, that what you wore on to vault? No, I actually wore a pair of. Um, <laughs> it was that fine line where they were almost getting blown out <laughs> of, of the Velcros, and because. Oh, okay. I did to bolt fairly quickly. I mm-hmm. didn't expect to do it when I did it. So I was actually wearing a pair of shoes to work the route because <laughs> I wanted to, because you're on the yeah. to bolt for people that don't know, it's a 30 meter long route, dead vertical, um, like dead vertical. And I didn't want to be I, you know, a pair of super tight shoes working the moves and being mm-hmm. up there for an hour and a half or whatever. Sure. So I wore a pair of slightly comfortable shoes, but the interesting thing on the bolt is the feet are very, very bad, but they're not edges. They're all kind of like little nub and smears. Yeah. And so it worked out well okay. for, for me. Yeah. To not have like a really sharp, crisp edge. and I mean, the crisp edge probably would have worked that go anyway. I, I definitely felt dialed in. But um, it was nice to be able to like, you know, just kind of throw my feet around a little bit and get them on the, the smears and then uh-huh. adjust them as necessary. Yeah. Gotcha. Is there anything you would tell yourself if you could go back and coach yourself when you were 18? Yeah, I would definitely be the focus on the strength training while you can recover overnight. Okay. Um. I More think strength, I was like, less endurance. Yeah, but at the same time, like I was, I was always pretty focused on technique and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I don't think that was a big deal. Um, I mean, you ended up climbing. You've climbed hard boulders. You've climbed the Mandala. I know the boulder prop, the opening boulder problem on necessarily evil is like V eleven or twelve or something like that. Yeah. Did that? But imagine like the amount of time that I've put in and the amount of time that I've been training. Yeah. I feel like I'm not. You know, I'm not gonna lie. I feel like I should have climbed harder. Okay. Um. I mean, when I did 14A, kind of late 90s, 14A was still, you know, kind of noteworthy. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't that far behind some of the top climbers of the day. Mm. Um, you know, there's a pyramid of like, you know, the top echelon with like Adam Andra and Mikos there at the top. And then like, mm. you know, right below that's a whole tier of people. And then there's, you know, it gets more and more and more. I was probably in like the third tier, you know, kind of thing. Uh-huh. You know? And now I'm in like the 20th, 30th <laughs> tier. Like, I don't even know how far down I am. Like... <laughs> That was actually, so after I did Necessary Evil, two weeks after I did it, Adam Andra came to Vegas uh-huh. and he wanted a boulder. He, he was initially, when he came down there, he was hoping to just be on a bouldering trip, okay. but 
it snowed in Red Rock the night he arrived. Hmm. And so I was like, hey, like, you can't really climb here. It's, you know, it's covered in snow, but like, you could definitely go and climb some limestone, potentially necessary evil or something like that, because it was cold and it's a low, uh, low elevation crag. And so he went out and he tried to onsite necessary evil. Mm -hmm. And he was actually wearing a pair of no edge shoes, which is the first time I was like, what the hell? There's no way. But (laughs) because he's so flexible in his climbing style, he never really has to lift his heels. He can always get his feet high enough and smear. And it's like, I've got video of him on Necessary Evil and it's incredible watching him on it because he climbs it so much differently. Did you play that at a slideshow at the Smith Rock Spring thing? Maybe. I think you did. (laughs) I did. Yeah, So I remember that. Yeah, so... That's cool. Yeah. um, His onsite didn't go so well. He fell like at the first boulder problem. Uh But I really consider his like second go, the true onsite attempt. And he was up in the crux of Root of All Evil for about 45 seconds to a minute going back and forth trying to figure out how to do it. On, remember, on his red point. On his onsite. Like he'd fallen at the first bolt and came back to the ground and then was up, you know, onsite through everything. Oh, okay. It was now onsighting through the crux, but he was on his second go. Uh-huh. But he was still trying to onsite the crux of Root of All Evil, which yeah. is like kind of V10 bolt, the problem, you know, whatever. But he was like going back and forth and back and forth. And this is the move that I fell 58 times at. <laughs> so it was one of these things like, one, like, and people are like, oh, you know, are you upset that he almost onsighted? Or are you upset that he tried to onsight? I'm like, no, like, it's amazing. Like, he's, uh-huh. you know. <laughs> But it was also kind of a, a realization where, like, there was a time where I could see the top level. I wasn't at huh. the top level, uh-huh. but I could see it. And I could also visualize, oh, if I trained hard enough, I could be there, you know? Uh-huh. Whereas all of a sudden, I was like, holy crap. Like, nope. There's, <laughs> the, the world has gone so far beyond what I can comprehend. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And then wow. the cool thing is now, even with bouldering, like, you go out and you can see, like, V15, V16 boulders here. And I can't even fathom. Like, I look at this mm-hmm. stuff, I'm like, oh, my God, it's amazing. Like, I'm... I'm impressed climbers can do it. It was before, like, V11, V12 was, you know, like, cool and um, still cool. It's still cool, guys. Don't worry. Um, I know. It's a funny thing where it's like, I totally understand. I I feel the same way. but And yet, at the same time, I'm like, but the other stuff hasn't gotten easier. No. It's it's still really hard. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to see that the top level has just moved up so much beyond what I can see. And, I mean, I've, you know, improved a little bit, but just not as much as everyone else. (laughs) You know. Well, uh, Adam went on to on-site Just Do It. Yeah. Therefore. Which was ridiculous. Which like, was absolutely amazing. Because the thing about Just Do It, I, I actually expected him to on-site it. I'm not going to lie. Like, I uh-huh. I expected him to on-site to bolt. I was a little upset, and so was he, that his foot slipped. Yeah. But I knew if he got through the first four bolts, though, only in the 13, the CD section at the bottom, if he got through those first four bolts, he could take it to the top. Hmm. Just Do It isn't complicated. The hmm. movement on it isn't complicated. The chalk stands out like crazy. You don't need to read a sequence. You just rock climb. And he knows how to rock climb. Mm-hmm. But it was like 42 degrees and breezy. Oh and that bottom pitch, like that dead vertical pitch, those holds aren't good. So he couldn't feel them. Yeah. There's no way. No way. I, I was so impressed that he did it on that day. Yeah. I wasn't impressed that he did it. I was impressed <laughs> that he did it on that day. Yeah. I think that means that you can do it. If you did necessary evil and he did <laughs> not like that. Exactly. Right? Like <laughs> logic. Yeah. <laughs> It's, if we just logic this out, yeah, trust me, I, it's in the bag. Even to my own logic, I'm I'm upset I didn't do that one when I was there. The Mike Doyle comeback. Yeah, don't call it a comeback. <laughs> Is there something that you have been especially grateful for lately? Uh, I just spent a month in Costa Rica. That was awesome. Tell so me that, about that. That. Is, that is one thing that like. With my job, I as much as I work yeah. many hours and stuff like that, the ability to work remote is priceless. Like, yeah. Um, that's kind of worth suffering a little bit. That's amazing. So you mentioned surfing when you were doing your Horn Lake, Vancouver Island days. So yeah. has, has surfing always been there? This was a surfing trip, right? Yeah. 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 The Costa Rica one was the surfing trip. Um, 
So surfing initially, obviously I always enjoyed the idea of it. You know, looks great. Girls in bikinis, warm water. Yeah. That's that's awesome. You've got what, the hair going right, right now. Right now I do. This yeah. is for Costa Rica. <laughs> it was actually. <laughs> now I'm like stuck. I'm like, do I cut it? Because I'm not going no. back to Costa Rica. Looks do I great. Let it go? I don't know. Sure but um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, once I start rock climbing again, I'm, because my, my try hard hairstyle is buzzed. For sure, for climbing. Like okay. I, when I did Nestor Evil, I buzzed my hair. And I used to compete. I always used to buzz my hair the night before I competed. Really? Yeah. But the surfing, I initially thought it would be a good like rest day activity. Because Horn Lake is on one side of Vancouver Island and the surfing's on the other side. Hmm. I figured I would climb Friday, surf Saturday, rest, relaxing, it's casual, climb Sunday. Uh-huh. Then I went surfing. <laughs> and I realized surfing is freaking exhausting it's the hardest thing i've ever tried wow i've tried it i've surfed and that was like two thousand early 2000s and i've surfed kind of since then i'm uh-huh. no better i suck at it but M- mostly the paddling and the upper body oh, it's or exhaust- yeah, paddling, the paddling okay yeah like you spend much more time paddling than you do standing up you stand yeah. up for five ten seconds a, a 15 second ride's a huge like a long ride yeah and you got yeah. three minute paddle back out and then if the waves are <laughs> pumping you're 45 minutes to an hour trying to paddle out you know is it good tr- cross training you think it uses some of the same muscle groups, but it's um, it's definitely hard. It's not recovery. Like mm. you're, so it's not necessarily cross training, but it's definitely some of the fitness translates very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then it quickly shifted to climb Friday, climb Saturday morning, drive across the island, surf Saturday night, surf Sunday. Okay. Don't try to surf <laughs> Come in back. between. Yeah. Cause <laughs> you also spend eight hours in the water. Your skin is soft. Yes. And salt water. Lake's quite abrasive. Yeah. So you come back, it was just, oh, I think I did that once where I, I climbed Friday, surfed Saturday, climbed Sunday, and I didn't rock climb Sunday. I pretended to, but yeah, it was a waste. And then since then, I tried to take like a little bit of downtime off from climbing, maybe starting about 10 years ago. And that was kind of when I would focus on like go surfing and start like going one, to Costa Rica. One chunk of time a year. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I was going to Costa Rica kind of for two weeks in the winters for a few years and then started Necessary Evil. And Necessary Evil is a winter climb, so I actually didn't go to Costa Rica okay. for three years, I think. Gotcha. And then went down for a month this year, which was awesome. Yeah, good trip. Oh, phenomenal. Nice. Yeah. Do you have community down there? Do you have friends that you run into? And- yeah, I've, and I had friends that came down and stayed with me. Like, okay. Um, different friends came down for like a week here and a week there. Um, and I met people down there and now have a little bit more of a community. The area where I go has like this brand new fitness center that was super awesome. And nice. So I'd go in there and like do a workout after surfing and had a little hangboard and took that like Metolius, the light rail one down and mm-hmm. uh, would hang it up. And all these guys that are, you know, massive weightlifters were so impressed I could hang on a small cramp, <laughs> which is great. So I had a little in with the, the little... I know. Yeah. God, if any climber wants to feel good about themselves, just go to like any gym where, you know, meatheads are like benching a lot and just do some weighted pull-ups. Yeah. Like blows their mind. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe how much, how many plates you have on your waist. And it's like, eh, I'm just warming it's what up. what I do. Yeah. This is what I do. Yeah. <laughs> What's next for you? What's coming up? So, yeah. So, um... Definitely going to back up to Canada for the summer. Nice. Um, not really sure this spring. I think I'm trying to rehab my elbow. So I you know, tore the common flexor tendon. Seeing how that's going, it's not going as well as I would like right now. Yeah. Um, I'll follow back up with you. I'd love to see what you learn and, and see what ends up working. And we can hopefully pass that on for people. Yeah, absolutely. And like uh, I'm going to be doing a bunch of kind of just running. I think it's going to be like my fitness focus right now. Mm-hmm. Um, You've mentioned that a few times. Do you think that helps your climbing, or is that? I don't just... know if it helps. Well, there's that. That's not true. There's a few things. Like, depends what your goal is. So mm-hmm. every, everything you have to back up to. Like, what is your goal? If your goal is just weight loss, 
people will say, well, no, it's more effective to do like actually uh, like weight training, stuff like that, where you're even after the workout, your body's still, you know, consuming calories. You'll, you know, yeah. High intensity intervals sort of stuff. Um, And people like say that I'm like, well, that's great, but that's, you know, that's one thing. But like the thing about running, honestly, that I think translates best to climbing it's not the fitness because I think even the in- interval training is more uh, effective for climbing. Climbing is much more interval, like mm-hmm. at a rest, boulder problem, rest, boulder problem. The thing that translates the most to climbing is that it's easier to stop. So when you're running, it's always easier to just stop. Mm. And I don't enjoy running that much. So the mental part, I enjoy it once I like I'm really in it, but like the mental part of pushing yourself and be like, no, don't fucking stop keep going keep going that translates to climbing hmm. and I, I actually if i'm running a lot climbing's easy because i'm out and i'm pushing myself and, I, and getting into that mentality of pushing yourself translates to climbing hmm. but um if i can't climb that much definitely i enjoy big days in the mountains and being able being fit enough to move quickly over easy terrain hmm. mm-hmm. and i think so I'm, when i'm talking around i'm talking trail running and like more like power hiking to scramble to, you know, whatever, not just road running. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So more of that in your immediate future and some rehab and... Yep. And then back up to Canada this summer. Any other trips on your radar? Uh, I'm going to go to Japan for the Olympics. So oh, Sean cool. McCall qualified for the Olympics and uh, I want to go watch that. So That's awesome. Uh, I'm going to go to Japan to watch the Olympics and then in s- September... I'm definitely going to Spain. My dad's turning 70. He's walking on the Camino to Santiago. People know what that is. I'm going to go walk for four or five days with him. Oh, awesome. Um, he's doing like 30, 35 days. I'm going to just, you know, go four or five days and then go climbing in Spain. Nice. Yeah. So, <laughs> and then that's, I think, as far as I've planned out right now. Yeah. Okay. I, I like doing that. I like planning six to eight months in advance. Yeah. Then I kind of can communicate with people, make sure people are, are available to belay me. And, uh, yeah, it's basically even just let my work know like what my schedule is. Got you. Well, um, one last note that I have here that I guess we can wrap up on. I listened back to that conversation that you had with Neely, and you were talking about your weight loss component of Necessary Evil, and one key component was just ditching beer. And your replacement was Woodford on the Rocks, and I've got some Woodford here. Oh, in, amazing. In the van, so I figure we can uh, wrap this up. And That's a lot of time spent in Kentucky right there. And... That Actually, let me, so the Woodford's also a funny, I've got a funny I story. I love it. Yeah, let's okay. do it. <laughs> so I had a trip planned to Kentucky from Vegas here, where uh-huh. I was going to fly out to, uh, flow into, I think, uh, Louisville, and then go out to the Red for a week and then fly back. Mm-hmm. And I was going to meet a friend from Toronto down there. And like Bill Rams, he was going to fly out from Vegas with me and a few other people were going to fly out from Vegas. They canceled a little earlier and then the weather was not looking good. So, but Bill was out fly fishing for four days before the trip. So I couldn't get a hold of him. So, (laughs) and so my flight was at like 10 PM. His was at 10 AM the next morning. So at 10 PM, I'm on my flight. I land in Louisville. I get a message from him being like, I'm canceling my trip. The weather doesn't look good. Oh shit. So he's not showing up. Right. So now I'm in Louisville. He's not showing up. Like, okay, whatever. I go to bed, wake up. My buddy from Toronto had to bail. Oh, you know? no. So now I'm like, and I know people in Kentucky, like it wasn't a big deal. I could have definitely, but I was only there to socialize because I was actually going to be working so much. I wasn't even planning on climbing. <laughs> like I'd already, I'd already booked the hotel, you know, booked the cabin and knew that I was going to be mostly working and just kind of hang out with friends. So I go into Lexington. I've got a bunch of friends. There. I met a friend for breakfast. He was too busy that day to go climbing. It was a Sunday. 
the only good weather and then it was going to be crap weather for the next you know, seven days. Mm. So I was debating, like, I could drive out to the red. I'm sure there's people I know out there, like, be able to, you know, get a belay, turn around and then, like, you know, suffer it for a week in the rain. I'm like, or I could just go to Woodford, you know, <laughs> do a little tour, <laughs> sample some bourbon, and then flew back that evening. So I actually flew to Kentucky. <laughs> Went to Woodford, grabbed a bottle, flew back to Vegas. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. But yeah. Great climbing trip. Oh, perfect. One of the best. <laughs> Probably my best trip to Kentucky, actually. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, let's go find some ice. Let's do it. All right. Thanks, man. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Like we do it.